Amen. And in that way, loved ones, we're remembered that, uh, or we're reminded in that way that our highest joy is the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, and so we set our hearts and minds on that reality to come by faith, which is ours in Christ. I invite you now to turn in your Bibles to the scripture passage we'll read this morning from Isaiah chapter 20 and chapter 21. You can find that on page 1088 of our Pew Bibles. Brief introduction before we read the passage this morning. We find ourselves again in this large portion of Isaiah from chapter 13 to 27 where God has been addressing the surrounding nations, so the neighbors of Judah and Israel in their day. But as God was addressing those nations, the superpowers of the day, his main audience is still his own people, God's covenant people. And so God is using these oracles that he's hurling, in a sense, at the nations to comfort and to warn his own people. They comforted them by knowing that God would judge their oppressive neighbors who came and robbed them, killed them, kidnapped them, and did all other kinds of atrocious things to them and their people. And so it was a comfort to know that God would come and judge those wicked people. But God was also warning them not to fall in with their neighbors in their way of life and so with these oracles god was also pleading with them in a sense saying don't join in with the world lest you too fall in my judgment which will come over them do not fall in line with the world so we we will find that the ultimate cost of friendship with the world this morning is shameful nakedness and awful destruction in the end. And for that reason, we must stay allied with God by faith because he is the one, he and his kingdom will win in the end. And so those will be our three points after we read the text. Naked and ashamed, awful destruction, and then ally with the victor. With that said, let's read the passage of scripture this morning from Isaiah chapter 20 to Isaiah chapter 21. In the year that the supreme commander sent by Sargon, king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and attacked and captured it, at that time the Lord spoke through Isaiah, son of Amos. He said to him, Take off the sackcloth from your body and the sandals from your feet. And he did so, going around stripped and barefoot. Then the Lord said, Just as my servant Isaiah has gone stripped and barefoot for three years as a sign and portent against Egypt and Cush, so the king of Assyria will lead away stripped and barefoot the Egyptian captives and Cushite exiles, young and old, with buttocks bared, to Egypt's shame. Those who trusted in Cush and boasted in Egypt will be afraid and put to shame. In that day, the people who lived on the coast will say, See what has happened to those we relied on, those we fled to for help and deliverance from the king of Assyria. How then can we escape? An oracle concerning the desert by the sea. Like whirlwinds sweeping through the southland, an invader comes from the desert, 
from a land of terror. A dire vision has been shown to me. The traitor betrays, the looter takes loot. Alam attacks, media lay siege. I will bring to an end all the groaning she caused. At this my body is racked with pain. Pangs seize me like those of a woman in labor. I am staggered by what I hear and bewildered by what I see. My heart falters. Fear makes me tremble. The twilight I longed for has become a horror to me. They set the tables. They spread the rugs. They eat. They drink. Get up, you officers. Oil the shields. This is what the Lord says to me. Go, post a lookout and have him report what he sees. When he sees chariots with teams of horses, riders on donkeys, on riders on camels, let him be alert, fully alert. And the lookout shouted, day after day, my Lord, I stand on the watchtower. Every night I stay at my post. Look, here comes a man in a chariot with a team of horses. And he gives back the answer, Babylon has fallen, has fallen. All the images of its gods lie shattered on the ground. O my people, crushed on the threshing floor, I tell you what I have heard from the Lord Almighty, from the God of Israel. An oracle concerning Duma. Someone calls to me from Seir, Watchman, what is left of the night? Watchman, what is left of the night? The watchman replies, Morning is coming, but also the night. If you would ask then, and come come back yet again. An oracle concerning Arabia. You caravans of Dedanites who camp in the thickets of Arabia, bring water for the thirsty. You who live in Tema, bring food for the fugitives. They flee from the sword, from the drawn sword, from the bent bow, and from the heat of battle. This is what the Lord says to me. Within one year, as a servant bound by contract would count it, all the pomp of Kedar will come to an end. The survivors of the bowmen, the warriors of Kedar, will be few. The Lord, the God of Israel, has spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, may he add his blessing to it as we meditate on it this morning. Like I mentioned, our first point is naked and ashamed. Nakedness. This is a topic that is uncomfortable probably for all of us. We think about it back in our middle school or high school days, you know, teenagers They giggle when they hear the word naked. Why? Because it stirs up strange emotions in them that they don't quite know what to make of or what to do with, and so they laugh it off. Our physical nakedness is something that we all begin to cover up as soon as we become aware as little toddlers that, oh, other people are wearing clothes and I am not. And years later, years later, now each of us here, nakedness is something that we practically forget about until our wedding night or until we have to visit the doctor to take off our clothes, to go under the knife for surgery perhaps. Nakedness reminds us of shame. You know, why is it that nakedness of a person's body outside of the marriage bed is the most shameful thing to expose? In one sense, nakedness reveals our creatureliness, right? We try and conceal this reality by wearing clothes to hide parts of us. But underneath each of us and all the clothes that we have, underneath that is skin and bones. We are creatures. We are not gods. 
We are tiny creatures who are privileged to be made in the image of God. And of all creatures, humans alone were made to live in a conscious relationship with our Creator. But our shame is not in our creatureliness. No, actually, that's a good thing to be a creature made in God's image. Our shame is rather in the way that we have used that good privilege, that good thing. So how have we used our privileged status as image bearers? How do we use it? Well, we ignore God's wisdom. We try to run our own lives on our own terms, and we think we have the right to choose what is good and evil for us. And so what do we do? We reach out and take whatever we want, even though it might hurt others in the process. And in that way, we act like we are little gods. That's what Adam and Eve did in the beginning. Do you remember that? Children, remember how Adam and Eve reached out and grabbed for what did not belong to them, was forbidden for them, and as a result, they became aware of their nakedness in a new way. Their prior nakedness as creatures before God was not shameful at all. It was something beautiful. And in peace, they lived with God naked and unashamed before him. But when they reached out to take that forbidden fruit, they chose to rule themselves. And that evil decision sent a shockwave of corruption reverberating through their body and soul. And they were never the same again. And their desires, we can think of their desires within themselves, wilted like flowers cut and left in the darkness. Because of those evil desires now lurking inside of humanity, inside of Adam and Eve, they saw each other's nakedness and they felt something that they never knew prior to that moment. The unsettling sensation of shame. Shame for what they had done. They knew. They knew they had royally messed up. They had committed a gross evil and they couldn't unsee it. Shame, if you've experienced it, or maybe even just in a nightmare, shame is like a spotlight on all of your evil deeds, exposed for others to see. In that moment, their nakedness reminded them that they were guilty and vulnerable before their creator and their judge. And so they were naked and ashamed. Now, what did they do about that shameful nakedness? They tried to cover it up, remember? They tried to make fig leaf clothing. We see that nakedness is shameful because it reminds us that we are, all of us, guilty sinners, vulnerable to the coming judgment of our God and our Creator, our Maker. We are vulnerable before Him. He sees us. And just like in this passage here, with the Egyptians in Isaiah's day, we too try to cover up our shame of nakedness with our own prosperity and prowess in life. We try and cover it up. We are prone to put all of our hopes and boast in our personal and collective achievements as humans. And we wrongly think that we can outfox the almighty God himself we think that we have better cover-ups now than Adam and Eve did. Better cover-ups than the fig leaves. But God sees through whatever you are using in your life to try and cover up who you are. He sees through. Hebrews 4.13 says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything 
is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before him. Jesus said so much as well in Luke, where he says this, there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. And what you have whispered in the ear in the inner room will be proclaimed from the roofs. All your deeds and all your words will be exposed. They are not concealed. So God, through Isaiah here, was warning his people about the shameful nakedness that Egypt would experience in the future. And so he asked his prophet, Isaiah, to do something dramatic, a prophetic enactment in his own body to make this point. God asked the prophet Isaiah to walk about in nakedness before his people, preaching for three years, warning them in nakedness. Why? So that they wouldn't seek out the covering protection of Egypt by way of an alliance, and that was a temptation for them. The Assyrians were coming from the north, and so the temptation was, we're going to reach down in the south to Egypt and make an alliance, try and build up our strength and protect ourselves from Assyria in the north. But instead of seeking that protection, Isaiah wants them to trust in the covering of God's promises over them. And the prophet Isaiah was willing, think of this, he was willing to walk in the shame of nakedness before the people of God because he wanted to keep them from falling into the shameful nakedness that Egypt would experience the shameful nakedness that he describes in verses 4 through 5. You see, Isaiah loved them, and so he walked in shameful nakedness to keep them from falling into that. And friends, isn't that what Jesus has done for us, but to a far greater degree? Think of what God the Father asked the Son to do, to become a creature, to become a man, a true man. And he came and walked in our human nature for three years. He walked about teaching people about God and warning them about the coming judgment. He was telling people the good news about the kingdom of God and the forgiveness of sins is freely given in his name. And then Jesus, what did he do? He willingly went to the cross of Calvary where he was stripped down naked and nailed publicly for all to see there on the tree. What was Jesus doing dying on the cross? He was in great vulnerability, lifting high our own shameful nakedness, our own guilty sin. Why? Like Isaiah, but to a far greater degree, Jesus was willing to take our shame to free us from it. To keep us from falling in to the shameful end of the world. So know this, no matter how dressed up and accomplished you are right now in your life, whether you're here today in sweatpants or in Armani slacks, God either sees you in your own shameful nakedness as a guilty sinner, or God sees you as a beloved child of his under the covering of his son's beautiful goodness. That's how he sees you, one or the other. You're either trusting in your own version of fig leaves or you're trusting in the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ, the one who died between two thieves on a cross. 
God either sees all of your naked lawlessness or sees you as decorated in the perfect robes of Christ's righteousness. Isaiah didn't want Israel to trust in Egypt for a military salvation, and we must not join in with the world in trusting or boasting in our own prosperity or prowess. The world says, trust yourself. If you do, you will end up like Egypt, taken away in judgment in all your naked shame. Instead, this morning, find the covering for your sin in Christ and in him alone. He is our only hope and boast of salvation. Jesus shed his blood to atone for all our sins, and he freely gives to us the robes of his righteousness to cover our shameful guilt. Don't follow the boasts and hopes of the world. Go to Jesus and find in him plenteous grace to cover all your sin. There's no better covering to present you as righteous before God the Father than the loving obedience of his beloved Son. And Jesus freely offers himself to you again this morning, as he said on the night he was betrayed, that he poured out his blood for many for the forgiveness of sins. Take him, take Jesus by faith, and Jesus will be your shield and your strength forevermore. So that is the one way, the one cost of friendship with the world is ending up in shameful nakedness, but Jesus gives us the covering. Now the second cost of friendship with the world is awful destruction. We find that in chapter 21, 1 through 10, where Isaiah is warning the Israelites to not make friendship with the imperial evil in his day that was rising and competing against Assyria, that is Babylon. Babylon was an empire built to achieve the best life now for its people at the expense of others. And they expanded their kingdom, taking people from their homelands as captives and later as servants and slaves. And that's what Babylon did under the rule of Nebuchadnezzar to Jerusalem in the year 587 B.C., And this is why Babylon throughout the Bible is portrayed as a symbol for imperial evil in the world. Men rising up and taking more power for themselves and leaving others behind, stomping upon them in the process. Isaiah warns God's people about them because he has this prophetic foresight that God gives him. He knew how things would unfold. God showed Isaiah that Babylon's imperialistic pattern of expansive oppression would eventually overreach and overtake Judah in the south. Babylon was a big bully in the world, and soon that bully was going to come and push little Judah around. And so Isaiah is trying to keep his people from becoming friends with their future captives, or captors, rather. Again, they were tempted to seek an alliance with Babylon over against Assyria. Now, how does he warn them of this? He shows them Babylon's awful end. Don't ally with Babylon because they will loot and destroy you. And they too will be looted and destroyed in the end, is what he's saying. But first, we have to remember that in Isaiah's day, Assyria was the current superpower in control. So Isaiah's mentioning here of how Babylon's victory over the Assyrian empire seemed to be a dawn of hope for them. They kind of looked forward to Assyria being overtaken by Babylon. And he says in verse 4, the twilight I longed for 
has become a horror to me. What he's referring to is the hope of liberation from Assyrian rule. Well, it resulted not in more light, not in hope, but rather it produced a darker, thicker despair for them under the Babylonian rule. In the year 620 BC, the Babylonian king Nabopolassar defeated the last major Assyrian city and established his rule over the entirety of Babylonia. And that sort of looked promising at first, but then the Babylonians who removed the oppressive regime of Assyria, well, they, the Babylonians, were just as oppressive. So we see that Isaiah is showing God's people before it happened, long before it happened, that Babylon was not going to give them their best life now. Instead, Babylon was going to be, as he calls them in verse 1, a desert by the sea. That's how he describes Babylon there, desert and sea. Now those two images, those two things, were the two worst places of chaos and judgment in the minds of the Jewish people. The sea symbolized for the Jewish people uncontrollable chaos. And the desert symbolized empty lifelessness. So both the sea and the desert symbolize death, and together they form a dreadful image. Isaiah is saying that Babylon is this big chaotic sea, but it's all dried up, a sea without a drop of water in it, a waterless ocean and an uncontrollable desert. There's no hope there. No life. What's Isaiah trying to communicate? Well, he wanted his fellow Israelites, his kinsmen, the people of God, to know that there is no hope of peace or prosperity with Babylon. In fact, essentially what he's saying is that Babylon's reign on the top of the world would be short-lived, very short-lived. We find that in history, Babylon came and ate up Assyria, but as we know, there's always a bigger fish, right? And so as the prophet Isaiah is foreseeing what is to come, he sees Babylon's awful end, their demise. And he says, fallen, fallen is Babylon. A bigger bully was going to show up and take over as the king of the hill. And that's what Isaiah sees here in verse 2. A dire vision has been shown to me. The traitor betrays, the looter takes loot. Elam, that is Persia, so that's the bigger fish Persia, attack. Media, lay siege. I will bring to an end all the groaning she caused. See, Isaiah is letting God's people know ahead of time about the fall of Babylon, and this prophecy would be fulfilled in 539 BC when Persia and Media conquered the city and took control of Babylonia. In verses 5 through 10, look at the text, verses 5 through 10, we hear this dramatic telling of how Babylon would fall. Isaiah describes the Babylonian royalty at a banquet table, feasting in luxury. Then all of a sudden, they're stirred up to action by someone, it seems, who's rushed in shouting, Arise, princes, oil your shields. In other words, get up, prepare for battle, because the enemies are upon us. The language is dramatic, it's vivid. It seems he's foretelling the fall of Babylon exactly how Daniel chapter 5 records it. For us. And I like to read some of those passages from Daniel 5 to show how this prophecy of Isaiah came to fruition. We read there King Belshazzar, son of Nebuchadnezzar, 
made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, the writing on the wall. If you've heard that phrase, that's where it comes from, Daniel chapter 5. And the king saw the hand as it wrote, and the interpretation that Daniel gives of that inscription was this, God has numbered the days of your kingdom, speaking of Babylon, and brought it to an end. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then we read this, that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius, the Mede, received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. And so there, in Daniel 5, we find the prophetic description that Isaiah lays out for us fits so well with what actually happened when Babylon was overthrown by the Persians. And when Isaiah got this vision of the destruction of Babylon, we find that he says he basically got sick to his stomach. His heart faltered. And the whole thing pained him in a great way. That's how he describes it. Why? Wouldn't the overthrow of Babylon be a good thing for God's people who were in Babylonian captivity? Well, yes, it would. This Persian king, Darius, also called Cyrus, would issue a decree for the Israelites to return back to the promised land. And they would be able to rebuild the temple and rebuild their houses and their life. But, but, as God gave Isaiah this vision of the overthrow, overthrow of Babylon, he also saw, it seems, horrific scenes of what would happen, the violence that would unfold, the murders, the killing, the slaying of people. And it reminds us again that war is a horror, a terrible thing. We've seen that here lately as we've been tuned in with the news of what's happening in Ukraine with Russia ruthlessly attacking them. It's sickening to see what humans can and do do to one another in war just to gain more power. So again, reminded that Isaiah's goal here as he's telling us this, he wanted God's people to realize that there is no hope that can be found in the kingdoms of this world, that Babylon would not give them a better life than Assyria. How does this all relate to us, may be the big question you're asking. Well, in Revelation chapter 18, which some of you have recently looked at in the adult catechism class, we find in chapter 18, verse 2 to 4, the Apostle John gives us a very similar account of Babylon, but he's speaking figuratively, and by mentioning Babylon, he's referring to the whole world that rejects God's rule. And he says there, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, words that echo what Isaiah had said long before. She has become a dwelling place for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean, detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her 
plagues. And so here is the message for us. Come out of Babylon. Get out. Get out of Babylon. As Jesus said, we are to live in the world, yes, naturally. He doesn't want us to go cloister ourselves up in the mountains and caves. No, we are to live in the world, but we are to not be of the world. So Christians, don't drink the Kool-Aid of Babylon, of the culture around us. Don't take in all the godless ways of the culture. Don't fall in line with those who will ultimately fall in the end to God's judgment. Because they will be awfully destroyed in God's judgment on the last day. This world is like a desert by the sea. There is not a drop of hope in it, nor in ourselves. And so we find another cost of friendship with the world. If you do not come to Jesus by faith, you will be exposed as naked and ashamed before your creator. But you will also be awfully destroyed in God's judgment in the end. And that is the fate of the world apart from Jesus Christ. And that's what the last two oracles in chapter 21 against Duma and Arabia are about as well. In both cases, the point is simple. As Ray Ortland summarizes, he says it in this way, the net impression that Isaiah creates throughout this passage is that civilizations of man in a darkening world, there is no salvation for any of us in society of human devising. It cannot be found in society made by humans. But allied with Jesus Christ, we are clean, covered, and more than conquerors through him who has loved us, which leads us to our last and brief point this morning, to ally with the victor, the champion. Look back at verse 10 of chapter 21 with me. There we find Isaiah's primary audience here, God's people. He's speaking to God's people. The message of the Lord comes to his people who are in this world crushed like grain on the threshing floor. Isaiah realized that God's people were destined to suffer for a time in this world. And this is true for us as well in Christ. We are nowhere promised our best life now. We have to remember that. To follow Jesus means a cross of suffering now, but a crown of glory later when he returns. In Matthew chapter 16, we hear what Jesus said to his disciples, and he says it to us again this morning. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul in the end? What is Jesus calling us to? He's calling us to give up trying to run our own lives according to our own preferences, on our own terms. Give it up. Instead, entrust yourself to Jesus and follow his way of life, which is better for you, better for us. And he's saying, if you're willing to lose your chance, think of it, if you're willing to lose your chance at your best life now for Jesus' sake, Well, he promises you that you will find a richer and fuller life in him forevermore, an eternal life. He's talking about eternal life beyond the grave, after death. Now, does Jesus have the authority, the right to make such big claims about life after death? That's the question that we should be asking. And the answer is yes, absolutely. 
Because despite the fact that Jesus hang there 2,000 years ago on the cross carrying all of our guilty shame in nakedness, and despite the fact that he was awfully destroyed on the cross in our place, taking the judgment that we deserve, despite that, Jesus won. He won. He paid off our full debt with God. And he rose again victorious over sin and death for us. He is the victor, the champion, the only one. And so, yes, Jesus has every right and authority to make those big promises. He is the risen Lord and the King of kings. And his kingdom will win in the end. Therefore, because Jesus rose from the dead, because he is alive today at the right hand of the Father, run to him by faith. Make an alliance with King Jesus to receive full covering for your sins and full victory in the end. Come to the one who said on the eve of his death, I have told you these things so that you may have peace in me. In this world, you will have trouble. Know that. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Remember, loved ones, the final cost of friendship with the world is an eternal debt with your Creator and standing before Him naked and ashamed to face the awful end of those who are enemies against God. Don't fall in line with those who will fall in the end. Instead, ally with King Jesus and you will be more than a conqueror through him who has loved us indeed. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this strong challenge, but also comfort that we find in your word again this morning. A warning to not fall in line with the world and its ways around us, but instead to align our hearts by faith to Jesus to take refuge in his covering of all our sins by his blood that was shed for us and to refuge in his perfect righteousness and the comfort that we have that he has conquered sin and death and is ruling and reigning now and will return to call us to dwell with him forevermore. Lord, give us that faith in Jesus to press on, to be in the world but not of the world. Give us that holiness set apart, but also salt and light to those who are around us. For Jesus' sake, we ask and pray in his name. Amen.